On this episode, Jeff Rowe. You're really worried that we're losing our freaking country. If you think your country is going to go, you know, oh my gosh, if you put an unmasked my children yard sign in your yard, it's like somebody's coming to your house to like arrest you. Like that's the kind of shit that motivates people. And you want the strongest mother scratcher you could put in the White House to fight back. And you, by the way, if they were pro-choice for 69 of those 74 years, you actually don't give a shit. I'm David Drucker with the Washington Examiner. Happy New Year and welcome to another edition of In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024, a ricochet podcast and a companion to my book, just out from 12 books, In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP. You might or might not have heard of Jeff Rowe. He's the Republican strategist behind Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin's upset victory in November. And he's the chief political strategist behind Texas Senator Ted Cruz. Roe managed Cruz's 2016 presidential campaign. I've covered Roe for years. He has a ton of clients that you've definitely never heard of. Often, we find ourselves chatting about the state of American politics at any particular moment. So that's what I tried to do on the first episode of In Trump's Shadow of 2022. Chit-chat with Roe and see where it takes us. If you want to understand how Governor Yunkin flipped a state President Joe Biden won by 10 points, you might think the conversation ended up going somewhere rather interesting. Jeff Rowe, thanks so much for joining me on In Trump's Shadow. You bet. Thanks for having me. I, I want to start out with an easy question. How did you manage to turn a, a 10-plus Biden state, Virginia, into a 2-plus Glenn Youngkin state? And along the way, practically sweep, uh, uh, regaining control of the, legis- of the of the House of Delegates, uh, at the very least, and, and winning those two top constitutional offices below governor. I have a great candidate, it's one way, um, and run against a terrible opponent in Terry McAuliffe is another way. And then have that terrible opponent run a terrible campaign doesn't hurt. We ran a campaign based on issues that people actually care about. And Terry McAuliffe ran a campaign against Donald Trump. And I think the Democrats are actually still doing that, even today. And they've really, they are just shy, in my opinion, with the January 6th committee and everything else that they're doing of becoming the single issue party and the single issue parties, Donald Trump. And, um, and because of that in our race, and they spent, you know, both of us individually between the Yunkin campaign and the McCulloch campaign spent almost a precise amount of money, uh, just right at 67 million each. And they outspent us by a few hundred, by a few hundred thousand outside groups are really non-existent in Virginia because we have the same, there's, there's, um, we have the same amount where well, there's no restrictions on, on donations to campaigns, but there was some outside spending. There was some union spending on their side and we had some, some um, political outside spending for ground and things like that. That was almost the same. So it was heads up competitively on that set. And then we all each had a primary. We spent about the same in the primary. We, we each spent just under, just under $10 million in the primary. Um, so the resources were the same. We spent all of ours. We got outspent dramatically in the end. And typically Republicans hold their money to the end of a campaign, thinking that we have to go get persuadable voters at the end. Democrats typically spend early. Uh, I never liked that because I always thought 
when we finally start spending, then a lot of these people's minds are made up and it's very difficult to move them. And I'm chasing a, an increasingly shrinking movable electorate. And so in this campaign, because it's an, not just an off year, but an off off year, then we should go do a lot of definitional building. So we spent for eight weeks, six to eight weeks, we were alone on the airwaves and we spent a bunch of money when Terry was dark. And, um, and, and after we had those six weeks to ourselves, he went up and he was negative for two and a half months and we didn't respond. And so this campaign really didn't engage and start stratifying the electorate in a negative way until August 16th. Um, and that's after we've been pounded for, you know, two and a half months. Do you, do you win that race if he doesn't commit that gaffe about parents uh, not having control over their kids' education? Do you win that race if we don't have pandemic conditions that create a scenario where parents are so much more dialed into their children's education? And in particular, especially in these northern Virginia suburbs near Washington that have been trending Democratic, uh, that in particular are not happy with the education that they're getting, in part because of the shutdown of the public schools? So when you win a race that close, I think you probably have to have, have every break. But I'll say I'll walk you through the polling. The week after the primary, we were down 11. Um, the week um, and, on, and on Labor Day, we were tied. And so we closed the gap by 4th of July to um, to we were down five. And so I think our campaign you would talk about the 12 point swing. I think that our campaign closed six of that. And I think the Biden administration closed the other six. And um, after Labor Day, there was never a day that we were outside the margin of error either way. How did the Biden administration close that other six points? How did they screw up? Afghanistan. Afghanistan. Um, and and so let me answer the broader question because I could go all day on that. But so what Terry's gaffe did is it allowed us to kind of galvanize persuadable voters into one message. And what we were doing before that is we were talking about the parole board to a group of persuadable voters. You know, going into that message, going into that debate, we'd spent $1.6 million on a parole board message, the parole board in Virginia had released violent offenders, the violent offenders had gone out to commit other heinous crimes. And so, and it's a completely governor appointed, Terry's original appointee started the process. He still had appointees on the board that did not lapse off during Northern. And so he was, you know, he was kind of um, still, you know, directly responsible. So we were trying to litigate that. We were litigating education issues based on school violence when they pulled out school resource officers and those defund the police groups that advocate for that are the same people that endorsed him. He, he accepted their endorsement, X, Y, and Z. And so there was other issues going on, CRT and, 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 um, and you know, school choice and just a lot of different issues. But what that really did is let, is let us simplify our message. We pulled all those messages down. Midnight that night, we shipped our ad to start the next day. And allowed us to just run on one thing that everybody agrees with and allowed us to get to 66% of the people agreeing. 
But out of those 60 days between, I think, I think uh, Labor Day was September 2nd, uh, Election Day was November 2nd. Of the 60 days between Labor Day and Election Day, we were never outside the margin of error, not a single time. And of those 60 days, you know, 30 of those days, we were up the margin. 20 of those days, we were tied, literally tied. And 10 of those days, Terry was up within the margin. So did parents matter? Did that gaffe um, help us? No doubt, because it simplified the message. It made a clarion call. It played into what everybody wanted to you know, be about. Uh, it made it very simple to the persuadable voters. It even motivated our base, and it actually cut into his you know, message, made it uncomfortable for him. And so, so yeah, of course it did. But the Biden folks and the and the Democrat kind of um, atmosphere, which of course Virginia typically goes against the incumbent, um, the, the incumbent White House. Afghanistan just proved what Republicans had been saying about about Biden for a long time, which is he, he's just not up to the job. He's just kind of a he's just a a figurehead and somebody else somewhere is pulling the train, pulling the, you know, pulling the levers. And that just horrific weekend. I've never seen polling move like that. So you're saying um, it wasn't it, it wasn't necessarily because there are significant military populations in, in Virginia. Um, it's because of the mismanagement and how it made Biden, made Biden look as a leader. Yep. And it was five points from Thursday to Tuesday. Very interesting. Let me ask you about this issue of Democrats and their their one note um, uh, in a sense, the way you've described it, their one note uh, talking point about Trump being uh, evil incarnate and January 6th and all of that. Is it that voters don't agree? Is it that voters don't care or is it that voters and obviously there are different segments of voters and that that would matter in how you answer this or but just to ask the broad question or is it the voters just think there are bigger problems it's a voters it's that if you let's say that you agree with them that you think that donald trump is the worst thing that's ever happened to america um it is not a pressing problem right now therefore their solution wouldn't make their life any better and so when donald trump was in the white house it presented a daily problem for them if you agreed with the democrat philosophy that he's the worst thing ever happened so therefore getting him out or getting his allies out of government would, would solve a problem. But, but even if you agree with their philosophy and you got, let's just say Terry McAuliffe, that Glenn Youngkin is going to be like Trump and Trump is bad. Well, there's no, there's no original sin that Glenn Youngkin has committed that's going to make your life worse. And so and Donald Trump's not there. So why, why does it matter to me? And so literally of people that thought that Donald Trump was the number one issue of the campaign, which was 39%, we benefited from that. Every time he ran a campaign campaign ad, over $10 million worth just on Trump alone, just on that one Trump message alone, I think it was like $11.9 million just on the Trump message. We benefited from that. It was 21% of the of the 39% that cared what Trump, you know, who Trump supported. Like, I think it was like, you know, it's like, I, can't, I don't remember exactly, but somewhere around 21% of those people were voting for us and the balance were voting for him. So it was actually helping us every time we ran that ad. So by the time this episode of In Trump's Shadow airs, it will be Governor uh, Glenn Youngkin of Virginia. As Democrats in Washington, President Joe Biden are in the midst of trying to pass an overhaul to federal voting law that they say is necessary because of uh, 
how President Trump handled the post-election period after the 2020 election, his claims that it was rigged and stolen, his efforts to overturn the election. They say this is incredibly important because Trump may do this all over again. When Democrats are pushing that message, and it's another way of asking a question you just answered, but I'm just very curious about it. Is it that voters just have more pressing problems or do they not necessarily believe, aside from whatever they think of a particular voting law or proposal, that Donald Trump is not the imminent danger to the republic that Democrats describe him as? Yeah, so um, when you have, um, it is so easy to go vote. And so when you have an electorate that participates in every single day, I'm sorry, every single year, and they literally go through this process, and then they're told that it's terrible and it's restrictive and it's and it's just like they have their own personal experience. And so there's no way to base motivate. I mean, and by the way, what I think what Biden is doing now is not necessarily if I was where he was, I'm not so sure that I wouldn't do what he's doing right now. I don't think it's dumb politically, maybe because he's it's so bad and they failed on so many levels. At some point, you know, for a year, he didn't talk about Trump. And now I think it's maybe a wedge for him to like at least stabilize his base. Uh, when he's been, when he's beneath the typical voting percentages of a Democrat, of a generic Democrat, like the wheels are off. So you got to find a place to stabilize somewhere. So you can't be on defense for the entire midterm. So going on offense somewhere is probably the right thing to do. Um, but it's not going to work because it's not a base motivator because all these people vote. And if you want to go vote, they got to go vote in the midterm. And the fear of people not being able to go vote is just not enough of a, deter, a deterrent or energizer for them because they've all done it. And it's easy as hell. And it's every state, you know, not every state, but 40 states have early voting and you can vote in Virginia for 45 freaking days. And still 87% of the people vote in the last 10 days. And, you know, 40% vote on the last on election day. And so nobody has this, you know, this whole, and, and then when they dramatize it for effect, you know, Jim Crow, and we're going to, you know, Bull we're going to take people back to the Bull Connor. Yeah, everybody had to go to, to the Wikipedia for that. So when they do that hyperbole, it, it doesn't work anyway because people have their own personal experience. You can't tell people what a hamburger tastes like. Everybody knows what a hamburger tastes like. And so you can't make the exaggerations. It doesn't get anybody more fired up. And then you take an, an issue that even if it, at its height would have been, you know, outside the top 10 and try and make it number one, it just doesn't work. I worked with, with Rachel Maddow, but not much past that. Interesting. All right. I want to uh, uh, shift gears here and play a game I like to call, it's called hypothetical time travel. You know, there's nothing a political strategist likes more than getting a hypothetical question about something they can never do anything about. We but, tell our candidates, we tell our candidates all the time, do not answer hypotheticals. So, here we right. go. <laughs> so you are going to ignore your own advice because this yeah. is just a podcast and we're having fun. <laughs> Uh, for people that don't know, Jeff Rowe uh, is the is the chief political strategist for Texas Senator Ted Cruz. He, you were the campaign manager, correct, of his 2016 campaign. Ted Cruz was the runner-up in that campaign. The Republican Party has a history of nominating runner-ups that run again. Obviously, we don't know yet about 2024, and we don't know if President Trump is going to run again. And there's a lot of things we don't know, but but uh, Ted Cruz is not necessarily an insignificant player in all of this. 
Uh, Donald Trump was a new entity in politics in the 2016 campaign. Wasn't new to the country, wasn't new in real estate, but he was new as a candidate. There were a lot of things that may have worked against other candidates that didn't work against him. I mean, sometimes it seems like as much as Donald Trump tried, he couldn't sink his own campaign, which which is a credit in many ways to his own political strength and his instincts and all of that. What I wanted to ask you on our game here of hypothetical time travel is having lived through that campaign, plus a few years after that, uh, having run a presidential campaign against Donald Trump. If if somebody said, Jeff Rowe, I'm putting you in the time machine, you're going to go back to 2016 and try and undo all this stuff. I'm not saying you want to, but this is the game. And you get to know everything you know. You get, you're the only one who's going to have this experience. Nobody has any memory of this. Uh, it's kind of like a superhero movie with, with uh, different timelines and universes. I'm not saying that anything would have beaten Donald Trump in that campaign because timing is everything. And, and there are so, there's so many factors that go into these things. And you change one thing, you change everything. But if at least you were going to set out to say, this is the best way I think we should go about trying to beat him. Now that I know all of these things that happened in this other timeline, what is the lesson? What is the best way to go about trying to beat Donald Trump in a primary? The, the mistake that I would correct, it would be uncomfortable as hell. And I'm not sure if I could convince my teammates and Ted even you know, even if I said, hey, guys, I've seen this. I know this is going to happen. Like, trust me, I'm not sure I can get that done. But it would the, the embrace, the long embrace of, of Trump would not have happened. We would got we would have gone after him um, ideologically from the jump. And what happened was because of his um, ability to communicate and and his populist policies that aligned with conservative philosophy it gave him a bridge to the conservative voter that we didn't really see coming. And because he's so, you know, brash and anti-political correctness and all this, he actually got past this hurdle that typically outsider candidates have to get through, which is, well, would you repeal Roe v. Wade? And would you, you know, what do you think on gun rights? And, and he was functionally, you know, pro-choice for his first 69 years. He, was, he wrote chapters in his book about gun control. And instead of tackling him and those issues, we let that go. And in retro, because he was saying populist things that that churned this the, the loins of a conservative activist without talking ideological. And we would have I would have absolutely tackled that. You know, agreed or dismissed the populist policies that he's coming up with, which he came up with a lot. Uh, and just absolutely tackled him on ideology and put him in a corner every single day on those things and made, made him pay for it. We waited too long. And then by the time we got to where it was time to, you know, go to combat, which was, I would never forget the plane ride, although I forget, I forget the day we had just overtaken Ben Carson and he for the lead in Iowa. We were all in Texas. We'd flown commercial for the whole campaign we finally sprung for private for private flights and we were flying up a bunch of us and uh, we we're flying up and, and um, we we're, you know, watching Braveheart on the way up because we, we knew when we landed Branstead and, and the whole you know crew was coming and we knew we were dropping our ad against Trump 
we were left to relegate eminent domain. And when you're you know, in hindsight in my time travel machine, it would have been a lot better for us to run a, a uh, abortion. And we ran abortion ads too, but it would have been a lot easier to have tackled that in June with him and let every primary voter in the country know that he had an incongruent position on abortion from the jump rather than let him kind of fix all that stuff with pro-life voters on non-necessarily ideological pro-life issues. He fixed it with other issues. And so that left us, even when we ran the abortion ad, it would only work with a sliver of people. He was even bad on the abortion, on the, uh, on the bathroom bill, you know, I mean, he's bad on a lot of things. And so, but it left us with the one thing that was the most movable was, was uh, in a domain. And so, you know, that was a big, huge mistake letting him get his feet underneath him for that long. And uh, I would not have done that kind of protracted, you know, bear hug that we did with him, thinking that he would eventually sink his own boat. Yeah, it, it you know, strikes me in, in hindsight. Uh, this is my hindsight as a as a color man in the cheap seats there, you know, watching all the penalties and getting to use my telestrator to point them all out and, you know, having no skin in the game that the biggest mistake. And again, it may not have worked. But the biggest mistake was that everybody wanted to beat up everybody else, and then they would get to Trump later. Meanwhile, Trump beat up everybody. I mean, he was, he's attacking former presidents, current presidents. He's attacking bozo reporters like me. And uh, Although I don't know if he actually attacked me, but I'm a bozo reporter like every other reporter. Um, in other words, he fought everybody. And I feel like, and you and I have talked about this issue of, of having fight and showing fight. That told Republican primary voters, man, it, this guy will fight with anybody. And I feel like, you know, when you're going to beat the big dog, you can't pay, play a strategy game. You just have to, if you want to replace him, you have to go after him. And yep. then in hindsight, again, maybe it wouldn't have worked, but the way you take out somebody like Trump now understanding where he fits in the milieu of a Republican primary voter is you go, you don't worry about anybody else that's in second place. You go after him. And maybe voters will say, no, I like him. Forget it. But that that's the only way to do it. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. No, for that, that's what I'm saying. We would have had to take him on guns blazing right out of the gate. I mean, we spent, yeah, to your point of we were playing checkers and he was playing chess, which is a stupid political metaphor. But um, we spent seven point. I, I know what the number was. I can't help but use precise numbers because I tell everybody around me not to round them off. So that's the way I operate. So when I say seven point eight million, it was literally seven point eight million. We spent seven point eight million on Super Tuesday on the SEC Super Tuesday against Rubio to keep Rubio under twenty percent, so he wouldn't get delegates in some of those states. I mean, literally, like you want to talk about, you know, playing small ball when Trump is playing big ball. I mean, and that was to our own detriment at times. We would not advertise and as much for us to keep him from getting a state. I remember spending a bunch of money in Virginia and Tennessee two states where Rubio had a little bit going. And uh, we spent a ton of money making sure that he would either not win the state and get the delegate count or stay under the typically most states and particularly SEC states have 20, 20% thresholds. If you're under 20%, you don't get any delegates. And so we were playing a delegate game from the jump because I always thought that it was such a fractured field, like we could end up at a convention and so we were playing a delegate game. I remember we spent that much money and looking back on it, it's like, geez, what were we doing? And we always spent total, you know, under six million against Trump mm. in a 93 million dollar campaign. Wow. How 
unbeatable as Trump in a Republican primary if he runs in 24? Or is he beatable? Yeah, he's unbeatable because um, if you gave somebody, he's unbeatable. Um, if I have my my magic time travel machine and I can go forward to the end, if somebody, if you gave the right candidate $200 million and, you know, and, and an infrastructure and the right staff and all this kind of stuff, somebody could like play ball with him for a while, but you can't get activists. You can't get staff. You can't get, um, you can't get coverage. You can't get, um, you can't get donors. You, even if, even if you were able to get $200 million from, you know, five, you know, five guys give you 40 million bucks each because they hate Trump so much. Like that doesn't count. It's, it's super PAC money and it, it spends half the rate. So he's unbeatable. He's unbeatable from the conventional theory. I mean, I just did a national, um, a national survey not long ago. He's eight, you know, he's 88, eight in a Republican primary. Now there are other people that are pretty popular too, but, um, but from a functional standpoint of how would you ever convene a campaign to go against him? There's, literally no way. Hmm. Interesting. Do you have a handle on why he has maintained such a tight grip on the party? No, I mean, I have my ideas. I wrote a lot about it in, in Trump's shadow, but I, you know, I do get these questions from time to time from people who are not Republicans. Why, when Republican voters look at some of the setbacks he has had, even if he got a raw deal on the Russia investigation, even if he gets a raw deal from the media, you know, he still lost control of the House, lost control of the Senate. Is it just that they believe the election was stolen, therefore he didn't really lose that after all? Or has he established just a special kind of relationship? Uh, because even, you know, when I think about this, you know, because you look at polling of Republicans, not everybody who votes in a Republican primary is the base, is the Trump wing, right? I mean, this there are a lot of other Republicans that are a part of the coalition that I'm sure you poll because you want to look at the yep. breadth of, of where things are. And, you know, from what you're telling me, it's not as though, well, Trump's at 35, but hey, there's this, or, you know, at least 35, but hey, there's this other 35 that's up for grabs. And then maybe you end up in another mano a mano at the end of a primary again, like last time, but you're just telling me no. No. No way. So what he does and what he has and the reason why he has that strength, first of all, Obama lost the House and Senate. I mean, Obama, the people, parties hold former presidents in pretty high esteem. So, you know, Obama lost 63 seats, right? So, and nobody held that against him. Um, and he has like one or two signature accomplishments over eight years. I mean, and he's the star of their show. I mean, Trump has the same amount in four years. So, they're very, by the way, similar in that regard. Um, what he has done, if you're a Republican and you're, and I'm not saying an activist, but if you're a Republican and you're participate in primaries, and that, and by the way, you're right, there are there are moderates that participate in primaries. There are, you know, establishment folks left. There are certainly a, that's certainly a more narrow group than it used to be because not because. Um, people are that much more conservative. And it's, it's just that really, if you're an establishment moderate, you probably have just gone ahead and switched to an independent ticket splitter, or you've become a Democrat. You're probably only that because you've lived in a state where you, if you want to vote in a primary and impact who won elections, you voted Republican in the primary. 
Um, the reality, though, is if you're a Republican primary participatory voter, then you want your taxes lower and you want, you know, fewer abortions today than there were yesterday. And you want nobody to take away your guns and all that kind of stuff. There's certain things that more you to the you know philosophy of the party. You want, you know, lower, lower um, government involvement. But here's what you really are worried about. You're really worried that we're losing our freaking country. And that means a lot more than just what the tax rate was and the fact that he got it down to 21. And I don't think any other Republican would have got it down to 21. And he was had so much other stuff going on that the press was talking about every single day that every other Republican was talking about 27 or 28. Or I mean, and he's getting it out of 21 and it's like nobody blinked an eye. It would have been 20 without Ivanka. Right. So, I mean, so he got big things done. That's not what makes people love him. The, the fact the reason why people love him is because. If you think your country is going to go and everyone's willing to accept a little bit of woke bullshit in their life and you can't say certain things anymore and, and everybody's going to criticize you, you send an email wrong, you lose your job and you send an email 10 years ago and you get fired and like all this stuff is all around you and you just can't say shit that everybody kind of believes, but maybe it's not exactly the way you should say it. I mean, people live in fear of that kind of stuff. I don't because I work for myself and I run campaigns and everybody thinks I'm an asshole starting out, so I don't have to worry about it. But like real people going to school and, you know, oh, my gosh, if you put a unmasked my children yard sign in your yard, it's like somebody's coming to your house to like arrest you. Like that's the kind of shit that motivates people. And you want the strongest mother scratcher you could put in the White House to fight back. And you, by the way, if they were pro-choice for 69 of their 74 years, you actually don't give a shit because that's the stuff that animates and makes Republicans fearful. And it's not a, a lot of people say I just want to leave my country where my kids can do better than I did. I mean, there's a philosophy underpinning that for sure. But it's like, no, I don't want my son to be accused to have his life ruined because they're going to take his they're going to take the word of somebody else over his. And he's a rapist like they're not going to give him due process or they're not going to let you know, they're going to let some some, you know, grown ass man into the same bathroom with my daughter or they're going to let some dude swim against my daughter and it's okay like that shit's not okay and we're all sitting around here and it's you can't even hardly say what i'm saying right now and if i wasn't a knuckle dragger guy that, that like does this shit for a living i can't say with you but that's like you can't say that shit anymore it's like really we got two dudes swimming against each other in a swim meet and like we're just all like supposed to be okay with that like that's the kind of shit that like republicans fear and to have a guy that goes and says it is like like the clouds part and the sun rays come down and it's like, that is why he is who he is. And everybody else is like, you know, talking about whether we're going to have a flat tax or not. Like, that's great. But I, I mean, I, you know, I'll pay a little bit more to have somebody like call this bullshit out every single day. And that's why he's powerful. It is nothing. It is that period stop. And I think, I don't think we have really probably anybody else like him. And I also don't think we have a threat to that, to kind of Republican culture than we have right now. Because now, literally in Congress, Nancy Pelosi, who has been our punching bag for, gosh, I think we're running against ads against her for 15, 20 years. And she's now a moderate. Kirsten Sinema, who, like, I lost to in a campaign, wore a pink tutu and protested war you know, and ran Ralph Nader's presidential election in Arizona 
and is a called herself a Prada socialist is a moderate. I mean, it is bananas. So, you know, that's why he's got the power that he has. It's not how many bills they pass or how many seats they lose or win or any of that kind of stuff. It is that he is the guy that you, you know, the Jack Nicholson, you know, who do you want on the wall? Mm. Yeah. So that's where it is. And if he does not run in 2024 to win the nomination, you have to find a way to communicate that. Or you better hope nobody else does. And then everything's all equal. Am I right? Yeah, that's why I think there's like two there's two folks in the whole country that can even get close to my little rant there. It's DeSantis and Cruz. Fascinating. And and so I mean, there's other you I mean, people have books about it, people are talking about it, and you got chapters on each one, and I got it. And so, you know, uh, it's a fascinating book. I read this and you're listening to it, which I don't know how that would happen, but if you've not read this book, then you should go read it. Um, everybody's got like a little like chink in their armor, and everybody's got a little oppo, and you got this kind of stuff, and you know. DeSantis got a couple of scrapes here and there. Ted's got a couple of scrapes here and there. But when you really talk, want to get down to who would stand in the gap on those type of issues, they might have policy differences here or there. They might have they're maybe a little bit too much libertarian on this or that here or there. But DeSantis has a record on COVID that makes you translate that he would stand in the gap, right? And you see him fighting with 60 minutes and you see him saying, no, we're not going to close our schools and everybody else says. You see him like standing in the gap. And you see Cruz like, like murdering people in Senate committees and like taking a stand on every single issue every single day. And so you think about who the kind of tough guys are. And there's a lot of good candidates. And I'm not going to go much further down the list because I work for some of these people and everything else. And I think everybody I know that's ever gotten more than 100,000 votes would probably want to run for president if Trump doesn't run. But you, there's, a, there's definitely like a tier, there's tiers here. There's a tier A and then there's kind of it starts to tear out after that. And that's what Republican primary voters are going to be looking for. There's, there's an electability. So can you win? There's a, you know, social conservative and economic conservative, and I can do all the buckets for you. But the real math is if Donald Trump is the 800 pound gorilla, and I believe, and I could be wrong, you have people disagree with this and I'll get all kinds of emails and texts and stuff about how stupid I am. That happens routinely. But if you believe that's the path to victory, Okay, nobody's like him. That's why I believe he's unbeatable. But if he's if it's not him, who's the 400 pound gorilla? And then I think it's those two other people, smart people can disagree. And I'm, you know, rarely right, but never in doubt. But then you got a whole bunch of 200 pound gorillas that are really like really good at China. And they're really good on this or that or this or that. And that's great. And it's just I don't see two people that carry the mantle like like uh, those two guys do. Okay, before I let you go, and I'm talking to Jeff Rowe, Republican strategist, led the Glenn Youngkin campaign, led the Ted Cruz 2016 campaign and the 2018 reelection campaign for Senate. Got to ask you about 2022. We got midterm elections coming up. Um, Are things looking as good for Republicans as Republicans say they are? It's actually better. Well, the comparisons that I that that Republicans have referred to, which is 2010 in particular, um, when they won 63 House seats. And I mean, it was a massive wave, didn't win back the Senate, but won seven total Senate seats that year, picked up a Massachusetts seat in a special election. It had been Ted Kennedy's seat. So overall, you know, it was a year. Then we had 2014, of course, with nine pickups, almost two more, uh, one in Virginia, one in New Hampshire. 
came reasonably close, particularly in Virginia. Um, so is it looking as good as a 2010 or 2014 or is it unclear? No, it's super clear. And it's better than that. Um, I don't think we can win as many seats because we're, we're all better at, at redistricting now. So it's tighter than that. But um, the Senate races, I think, look better than people think. But in 1994, you know, we typically operate as a Republican Party with a, with a three to five point deficit on, on generic. In 1994, we had, you know, plus four. In 2010, we had plus five. Right now, we're plus nine. Plus nine. And the issue set in 2010 and, two, and 1994, we kind of created around debt and deficits and spending and all this kind of stuff. And they still weren't that high. Education, healthcare, that's always that, you know, always higher issues. But now the, edu- the, the issue set is ours. It's cost of living. It's, uh, it's inflation. It's education and not from the good side for the Democrats, the bad side for the Democrats. We don't have to outspend Democrats anymore on education. That's not the top issue. The, the way that we treat our kids in the pandemic, to your earlier point in the Virginia race, is, is the top issue. So the top issue, the top police, uh, crime and safety, it is literally our issues are like 65% issues. And we have a generic advantage because of Biden. Like it could be a, a, a even with even with gerrymandering or redistricting, I mean, I repeat myself, even with that, it could be historic. I mean, we're going to elect some people whose names we've never heard of, I think. Now, it could all change. But we're also from the fundamentals of the economy, which, by the way, the economy is like in large part. I mean, the Biden administration is not wrong. Four point three million people like left their jobs last month. I mean, they made a choice on that. That's older people worried about being sick if they're out. I mean, there's moms that have to go home because the costs are going too high and they got, you know, they're, they're choosing not to work. I mean, there's all kinds of stories about all this. But the fact of the matter, the fundamentals on the economy are not that bad. Right. The stock market's up and. You know, and, and 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 job growth is there coming back from the pandemic. So we're like 90 days away from this being kind of what the cake is going to taste like. Maybe 120 days from a, from an economic standpoint. And if that really settles in and that's what it is, and you throw in one international crisis that, that Biden even marginally mishandles, they are done. And I mean, historically done. It might make 2010 and 1994 look like a walk in the park for them it is it is literally that bad and by the way i'm a pessimist in politics i'm an optimist in life it's true jeff rowe is a huge <laughs> pessimist that that the one thing that i will back him up on um um as i've talked to him over the years he is i'm a pessimist. pessimist in politics i'm an optimist in life but i'm a pessimist in politics so it is really that good right now and so that's why that then breeds this culture where you get, and Glenn was, was a forward edge of this, then you get people like Glenn Young in the run. You get, I'm going to do a little bit of kind of homework for you here. That's where you get a guy like, like you know, a Dave McCormick to run. That's where you get a guy like a Jim Lehman to run. I mean, these guys are like, there's been people that have been led big companies. There's been guys that have served in the military and jumped out of our hands. You've had guys that have gone and got fancy degrees from fancy institutions. You've had guys that have, you know, you know had a hard scrabble life. But these guys are like, guys that did all this and it's in the same person and so because of that because of how the environment is it's getting these guys that are like real like you can't name a dozen people in political history that are like these guys that we're getting to run for a public office and so it kind of starts a cycle so now not only is the environment good but now we're not taking just a state senator and having him run for u.s you know u.s senate now we're getting like titans of their own industries 
And now they're starting to run for, you know, higher for U.S. Senate. We got attorney generals and Eric Schmidt. I'm going to leave somebody out, so I'll stop. But there you go. That's all right. Uh, I was like, Eric, I was like an Eric NASCAR Schmidt, driver there. Attorney general of Missouri running for Senate in running for Senate in Missouri, a rogue client. David McCormick, uh, former hedge fund CEO running for Senate in Pennsylvania, a rogue client. And Jim Lehman. Businessman running for Senate in Arizona, a rogue client. Adam, Adam Lysol, right. Look, and you, Josh you put up with my questions Adam, for a while. Adam Lysol, so Josh Mandel. I'm a NASCAR driver here, so I got to get like everybody in. <laughs> he is Jeff Rowe. Uh, he was the chief uh, political strategist for Glenn Youngkin. Uh, uh, as you're listening to this now, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin. And he also was the campaign manager for Ted Cruz's 2020, 2016 presidential campaign. Jeff Rowe, thanks so much for joining us on In Trump Shadow. Thanks Shadow. for having me. Brian Johnson is the producer of this episode of In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024. My book, In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP, is now available for purchase wherever books are sold. And every day, you can find my work online at www.washingtonexaminer.com. We'll see you next time. Ricochet. Join the conversation.